0: I invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 5 verses 10 through 13. As we consider the words of the Lord in this chapter of God's word, <clears throat> He that believeth on the son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He that hath the son hath life, and he that hath not the son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. We continue with our series through the epistle of 1 John and we draw to a close in the 5th chapter. Can you know with certainty that you have been declared righteous by God? That you have been pardoned of all of your sin? That you are no longer under the condemning wrath of God? And that you have eternal life? Or is it a mere conjecture or guess on the part of anyone to assume we can know such a thing with certainty? I've witnessed many times, dear ones, the heartache and the torment of of conscience that has plagued many professing Christians, including myself, who have not this certainty of faith You, dear ones, who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation, I ask you today, are you still living in the depths of doubt? And perhaps on the verge of despair at times as to your eternal state. It seems as though many times such doubts tend to plague especially new Christians, young Christians, But it's certainly not limited to those who are new in the faith. These same doubts do tend to plague Christians of all ages. But the question is, what do we do about it? What does God's Word teach concerning the certainty of our faith? Certainty of faith? Certainty of justification, certainty of eternal life is not outside the grasp of one who genuinely embraces the Lord Jesus Christ as his only hope of eternal salvation and who embraces the Lord Jesus Christ as his righteousness. Certainty does not have to be like the proverbial butterfly that we seek to grasp, that continues to elude that grasp, but we can cling to and know with confidence and assurance that we have eternal life. If any should wonder why such questions would concern the professing Christian, let him simply ask a similar question concerning an earthly relationship. I ask, what difference does it make whether you know with certainty that you are married? Do you think that certainty in this earthly matter is important and that the lack of certainty in this earthly matter has any kind of consequence to it? Well, I certainly hope that as you consider that particular earthly relationship, you would see the significance of having certainty Although your lack of certainty, hypothetically, in your marriage, will not mean that you're not married, if indeed you truly are married, nevertheless, such doubts will greatly hinder your growth in your marriage and certainly your enjoyment of your spouse in marriage. For the goal of communion with your spouse will be greatly hindered if you do not... Know that you are truly married to this one. And no doubt guilt will continuously plague and riddle your conscience if you cannot know with certainty whether this is your spouse or not. And so I say if certainty is so desirable and edifying in the natural realm, how much more in the spiritual realm? If certainty in marriage to your spouse, which is actually a mystery and a picture of a much greater truth, so the Scripture teaches us, if that is so important, then how much more significant is certainty in your spiritual union with the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the reality to which the natural marriage points? Well, perhaps, dear one, such a truth... Is self-evident to you that it is extremely important to know that you know that you have eternal life. And I don't need to, to continue to persuade you of that. You believe that's extremely important already. But let me tell you, there have been many opponents, many heretical opponents to this truth in history and are still opposing this truth of certainty of faith. Among Papists and Arminians, it is affirmed that one cannot know with certainty whether he is united to Christ. According to them, one may assert there is a possibility that he is united to Christ, or perhaps even a probability that he is united to Christ. But according to the Papists and the Arminians, he cannot assert with certainty that he is united to Christ. The Papists and the Arminians teach that no one can be certain that his sins are pardoned without a special revelation, because such a certainty must rest upon man's mere fallible judgment. And such a fallible judgment, they say, becomes a mere opinion rather than a confident certainty. For example, to illustrate this very point, the Papists at the Council of Trent denied, quote, that anyone can know with the certainty of faith that he has obtained the grace of God. And likewise, they denied, quote, that those who are truly justified ought to determine with themselves without any doubt at all that they are justified. So you see, dear ones, according to Rome, one cannot know with certainty that he has obtained the grace of God. In fact, such a claim to certainty, they say, is a bare conjecture. It's a mere speculation, a guess. And on our parts, they say it's the height of arrogance or presumption. Who do we think we are to make such a claim? That we know, that we know that we have eternal life. The Arminians at the conference at The Hague in the Netherlands noted, quote, that it is laudable and useful to doubt whether we will always be what we are now. You see, they said it's actually a good thing that we're uncertain. It's a very good thing that we doubt, that we have no confidence about our eternal state. Because they said, as we shall see, that kind of fear causes us to toe the line. If we fear that we're going to fall out of grace, that we're going to lose our salvation, they say that causes us to, in fact, be obedient. You see, it is nothing for the Papists and the Arminians to strive so fiercely for doubt in the matter of one's salvation For doubt and fear of losing one's salvation is to a large extent, as I said, that which motivates the papist to attend Mass. To recite the rosary, to confess one's sins to a priest, to perform the penance required by the priest and a host of other many meritorious deeds, works. And these many works are viewed by them as, in effect, sacrifices that they continue to offer to God so as to satisfy his wrath against them. And if you doubt that, listen to what we find in the New Catechism of the Catholic Faith by John P. Scholl, which it has the official imprimatur, a stamp of approval, of the Romish Church. It asks the question, How long will you stay in purgatory? The answer, until you satisfy God's justice for your sins. Until you satisfy God's justice for your sins. Do you hear the blasphemy therein uttered? Jesus Christ, according to Rome, did not sufficiently and fully satisfy by his death and his infinite justice. And righteousness, the complete justice of God against those who embrace him. And so they must help Christ by their multitude of sacrifices which they offer to him in this life and even after death in this mythical place called purgatory. And it's interesting that the word purgatory comes from the word purge. In Roman Catholic doctrine, it's a place where our sins are purged. And yet we find in Hebrews one three, when He, that is Jesus, had by Himself purged our sins. Jesus Christ purged our sins. We do not purge our sins. We do not help Christ purge our sins Jesus accomplished the purging of our sins once and for all and so that is why we find in Hebrews 10.14 for by one offering the offering of himself upon the cross by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified there is nothing that we can add to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ dear ones He has fulfilled all righteousness for his people. Thus, the perverse system of anguish, of conscience, and the inner torture of doubt as to one's true state before God is what keeps the Roman church going. And it keeps the people coming. And it keeps the people enslaved in bondage. How contrary... To the Papist and Arminian Council of Trent is the position of the Reformed divines at the Westminster Assembly who declared, and I quote, Such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. That's from chapter 18, section 1. Thus, dear ones, it is not the fear of losing one's salvation that motivates the one who embraces Christ in faith. It is not the fear of losing his salvation that motivates him to obedience, but rather a heart of love and gratitude for the abundance of God's grace and mercy that has been shown to him in Christ. In fact, the works of love performed in obedience to God's commandments can add nothing to the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It cannot be improved. It cannot be diminished. The righteousness of Christ cannot be diminished. It cannot be tarnished. Nor can it be improved in the least. In fact, if you must add to your righteousness or remove sin by your suffering or obedience, let me say this, you will always be plagued with doubt and Uncertainty. For you will always wonder when you've done enough. And that is precisely the point. You can never do enough. No matter if you were to work for all eternity, works of so-called righteousness, the best that you could offer to God, you could never do enough to earn God's grace and mercy. Because there's only one sacrifice that's sufficient. And that is of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you turn from yourself, when you turn from your sin, and even from your supposed works of righteousness, and by faith embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, God says, it is enough. You are pardoned of all of your sin." and accepted as righteous only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by faith alone. Now, let me add a qualification. That does not make your works of obedience optional. However, all who have been truly justified will desire to show forth their love for such a merciful God by keeping his good commandments. And I would say those who do not have that desire, burning in their heart to serve the Lord, to love the Lord by acts of obedience, do not know the grace of God, have not experienced the grace of God if they do not have the desire to serve the Lord, to be pleasing to him, to be obedient to him. There is no grace in their life because grace always manifests itself in one way or the other. It's not to say that man cannot fall into sin. He can. But God's grace will manifest itself by picking him up, by bringing him to repentance, grieving over his sins, seeking the mercy of God. Furthermore, the Reformers, looking at the testimony of Scripture and to the testimony of the Holy Spirit, taught that such a certainty in man does not rest ultimately upon the fallible judgment of man, as Rome taught. But rather this certainty rests upon the infallible judgment of the word of God and of the spirit of God who work together so as to impress this knowledge upon the heart of the believer and to assure him that he has eternal life. And so it's not their mere fallible judgment, not my mere fallible judgment, Judgment, or your mere fallible judgment, that it is the infallible judgment of God. And I would simply compare it this way to illustrate the point that this can actually be true. If the Holy Spirit can inspire an infallible Bible from fallible men... He can certainly take the Word of God and the gracious operations of the Spirit in a believer's life and impress an infallible assurance upon fallible believers so that they are certain that they have eternal life. In other words, if God can accomplish the greater, which is an infallible Bible from fallible men, He can certainly accomplish the lesser, which is an infallible assurance of faith. Again, listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18, section 2, where it says, This certainty is not a bare, conjectural, and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith. Having now set forth briefly, dear ones, the opponents and the adherence to the truth concerning the precious doctrine of the believer's infallible assurance, let's consider our text. My first point is the certainty of faith, and I'm going to begin with the last verse I read as my first point, 1 John 5.13 the certainty of faith. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Observe here in our text, dear ones, that the stated purpose of this apostolic letter from from John is, quote, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. As the Apostle John draws near to the conclusion of this letter, he states the purpose for writing this letter to these Christians living in Asia Minor who were under the attack of false teachers as being that ye might know that ye have eternal life. You see... John says it's not simply desirable as a Christian to, to know that one has eternal life. He is saying it is God's revealed will that all who truly believe in the Son of God know with certainty that they have eternal life. This is something for which every Christian should press, toward which every Christian should press. One should not resign himself to saying, I cannot know with certainty that I am in a state of grace. This is God's will for you that you press on if you do not now know that for a certainty. And if you have embraced Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation. For you see, One cannot truly enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ and delight in him if he does not know with certainty that he is united to him in the first place. How can one truly enjoy his Christian life any more than he he could truly enjoy his marriage if he does not know that he is truly united to Jesus Christ? And this we find in 1 John chapter 1, where the Apostle says in verse 4, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. How will your joy be made full? If you know that you have eternal life. The Gnostic false teachers against whom this letter was addressed apparently made an assurance of faith dependent upon their vain and passing mystical experiences with God. How many of us in the past have looked to our experiences, our so-called spiritual highs, as being the determiner, as being the judge of whether we truly know the Lord? Experiences, dear ones, can and do all the time deceive. Mere mystical experiences that we have at times can deceive. However, as we see in this letter, that was not the divine way to obtain the grace of certainty in a Christian's conscience. And we will consider the grounds for this certainty in just a moment. But I would have you note before we move on that this certainty of faith is not simply for the apostles who had received immediate revelation from God, but rather John makes it very clear that this certainty of faith is for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ today alone for your eternal salvation? Are you trusting in His righteousness alone? You who truly believe, regardless of who you are, can know with certainty that you are in a state of grace. And I would simply have you consider Three other passages that clearly make this point. We could probably multiply the passages of Scripture which teach that we can know this with certainty, but let me give you three others to add to the arsenal. In 1 John 2.3, the Apostle says, And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. How do we know that we know Him? If we desire to and keep His commandments. If we love to walk in the ways of the Lord. If we love holiness. We know that we know Him. It's interesting that John does not simply say in this verse, and hereby we do know Him if we keep his commandments. But he says, and hereby we do know that we know him. You see, what we see happening in this verse is that the Christian not only looks to Christ as the object of his faith, but the Christian also looks inward at the faith exercised and knows that that faith exercised in Christ is genuine. Not only is the object of our faith, faithful and true, the Lord Jesus Christ, but the Christian has a reflexive action to his faith whereby he's able to look back at his faith and he says, that faith is genuine. That faith is certain. That's a true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this scripture teaches. We'll talk about it a little bit more as to how we can know that, that it is a genuine faith, but but for the time being, the apostle says that we can know that we know the Lord Jesus Christ. The second passage is first John again, first John three, eighteen and nineteen. The apostle says, My little children. Notice he's not speaking to the apostles or to the prophets simply who have special revelation. But he says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Now, if we can have no certainty of faith, how can we assure our hearts before Him? If there is no possibility of knowing with absolute certainty that we have been justified by faith, how can we assure our hearts before Him? This passage teaches that we can be absolutely sure that we are in the faith. The third passage that I would present is Hebrews 6.11. Hebrews 6:11 which says And we desire that every one of you again he's not isolating a special group of Christians the elite and saying only you can know this but he says every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end full assurance not doubt, not uncertainty, not an incomplete assurance, but full assurance of hope unto the end. And so we've established from God's Word that the Lord says this is a gift, a grace which each Christian can enjoy. And before we move on to our next main point, let me further clarify this certainty of faith by the following statements. And so here's a series of statements so that we can better understand what the certainty of faith is and what it is not. First of all, certainty of faith is not necessary in order for one to be a genuine Christian. Because one lacks this certainty of faith does not mean that he has not true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the saints of old have struggled at times with doubts of God's continued grace and mercy to them. Consider Psalm 77. The plight of David. Listen to these words and how he struggled within himself. He didn't give up, but he was struggling. You can see that there is doubt, there is uncertainty here. He's crying out to God to assure him, to to renew that confidence in his life. David says in verse 1, I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah, thou holdest mine eyes waking I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart and my spirit made diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will He be favorable no more? Is His mercy clean, gone forever? Doth this promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. Here's a Christian who is wavering in the sea of confusion and doubt. Even a man after God's own heart was troubled to this extent crying out because it had seemed in every way that God had forsaken him. We ought not to be surprised if we, at times, through temptation, through sin in our life, through the attack of the enemy, through persecution, fall into the same The second statement that I would make concerning the certainty of faith is that certainty of faith in the life of the Christian is grounded upon the following three things. You want to know how to stir yourself up? to certainty of faith when you fall into that sea of doubt when you feel like you're on the verge of the depths of despair these are the grounds of certainty of faith that you should call out to God to stir up in your heart first of all the promises of God's word the promises of God looking to the promises which God has made to you as his children. For you see, dear ones, the promises of God depend upon the faithfulness of God. Will God be faithful to keep his promises? Is he strong enough to do what he says he will do? Is he able? And if he is able, is he faithful? And so the... Fulfillment of God's promises to His people when we embrace Him in faith depend upon the faithfulness of God, the character of God. Is God a liar? See, we have to talk to ourselves in this way. We need to speak to ourselves. Is God going to be faithful to who He is? Or will God deny Himself? Because that's what it means. If God does not keep His promises, He has denied Himself, and there is no God. And the Bible is not what it claims to be. And we should throw out our faith altogether. And so if we begin to search our hearts and to reason in this way, we will see by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us that yes, God is faithful to His Word. And we can trust in his promises and cling to his promises which he has made to us his people. For he will never fail. He has never ever failed to keep one of his promises. God is not a liar. And it is the enemy that would tempt us who is the father of lies himself. The enemy, Satan, who would tempt us to question the faithfulness of the Lord God. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Whose ability does it depend upon? Paul says, I know that he is able to keep his word and his promises. All that he calls you to do is to embrace those promises, to trust him, to cling to him. And again, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 4.21, speaking of Abraham, and being fully persuaded that what he, God, had promised, he was able also to perform. Again, Paul makes it very clear. The issue is God's faithfulness and ability. Are you resting in those promises, trusting in the Lord? Stir up your hearts, dear ones, when you're in doubt with the promises of God, looking to Him, the faithful God, to fulfill them. The second thing, the second ground of our assurance and certainty of faith is this, the evidence of God's grace in our life. You see, if God's grace is present in our life, as I said earlier, it will evidence itself. John, you recall in his previous writing in this particular epistle, says that three tests that we can use by which to to evaluate ourselves as to whether we truly know the Lord and can have assurance of that, three tests are these. Do we love holiness? Do we love the truth? And do we love the Lord God and the brethren? Those three tests occur time and time and time again throughout this epistle. Look to the evidences of God's grace in your own life. Those are not accidental. God's grace does not occur in a vacuum. If there's grace in your life, it's because He has placed it there. And it is the Spirit of God that continues to to cause you as His people to desire these things. However, we can see that if we do, in fact, turn away, fall into sin, if we do not grieve and sorrow over our sin, if we grow cold and indifferent in our Christian walk with the Lord, if we lose that first love that we have for the Lord Jesus Christ, if we grow completely indifferent to the things of God and become preoccupied with the comforts and the pleasures of this life, like David, we may indeed expect to experience doubt and anguish of conscience as the Lord withdraws the light of his countenance from us. Not that we're no longer saved, but you see, sin and rebellion against God does withdraw the light of his countenance, and doubt and uncertainty will certainly plague us in that state. That's why David cries out in Psalm 51.12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Because of his living in sin, the sin that he committed with Bathsheba, the sin he refused to repent of, the light of God's countenance was withdrawn from him. And he did not enjoy that certainty and assurance during that period. Likewise, the confession of faith in chapter 18, section 4, says this, True believers may have the assurance of their salvation divers ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted, as by negligence and persevering of it, or preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement Temptation by God's withdrawing the light of His countenance and suffering even such as fear Him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet are they never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. The third statement concerning the certainty of faith, certainty of faith does not issue in a careless life of wanton sin and pleasure. You remember that was what the Romish church said, that the way in which you keep people towing the line following in the doctrine of the church and obedience to God is for them to be doubtful of their salvation. But dear ones, certainty of faith does not issue in careless life. Does not issue in living contrary to the will of God. To the contrary, I would say, It is rather the means by which we truly enjoy God. You see, when we know that we know that we have eternal life, there is such a joy and delight in the Lord God that we desire communion with Jesus Christ. We don't want to offend Him. We do not want to grieve the Holy Spirit because of the love and the mercy that He has shown for us. We desire it to reciprocate that love. The fourth point or statement concerning certainty of faith is this, that certainty of faith is not inconsistent with a fatherly fear of God, whereby we humble ourselves before Him and show Him the reverence that is due Him. Certainty of faith is certainly opposed to and inconsistent with slavish fear, but it is not inconsistent with a fatherly fear and reverence for God so that we do not want to displease Him because of how holy and honorable and just the Lord God is. You see, it's a slavish fear that chases His children from Him. But it is a fatherly fear That drives his children to him. To enjoy his mercy and his grace. Because we know that God, when he disciplines us, he disciplines us as his children and for our good. Whatever he takes us through, he does so for his glory and to build character in his children so as to teach them and train them The fifth statement concerning the certainty of faith is this. The certainty of faith is not inconsistent with the reality that there are those who do indeed feign or pretend a faith in Christ. Yes, we would be the first to admit, yes, there are those who do pretend and who do have all of the right words with regard to the profession of faith, who indeed are not true believers. But that fact does not mean because there are hypocrites within the church, it does not mean that those who truly believe in the Lord cannot have Just as the Apostle Peter could say for those disciples who believed, we believe that thou art the Son of God, nevertheless Judas could play the hypocrite as a wolf in sheep's clothing in their midst. But he didn't deny the profession of Peter. He knew with absolute certainty and believed with absolute certainty that Christ was the Son of God very quickly as we consider the text again and because we have in previous sermons and going through the epistle of John we have covered many of these things I will not elaborate these points but simply make the points draw them to this particular theme of certainty of faith and show how they relate. The second main point is the testimony of the Holy Spirit and how that relates to certainty of faith. Remember the confession of faith mentioned as grounds for our assurance, the promises of God, the evidences of God's grace, and the one that I have not covered was the testimony of the Holy Spirit within the believer. And now we look at that third ground of the assurance of faith within the Christian. We read in 1 John chapter 5, the first part of verse 10, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He hath the testimony living and abiding within him. This is the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. Bearing witness with our spirit by means of the word of God and by means of the evidences of God's grace that are operative within us that we are the sons of God. No one will enjoy the certainty of faith if one of those three are lacking. The three go hand in hand. One who has a supposed witness of the Holy Spirit but has no evidence of trusting and clinging to the promises of God nor does not have evidence of the grace of God in his life is deceiving himself. One who does not have the evidences of God's grace at all in his life, it is not manifested in his life, though he says he is trusting in the promises of God, and though he says the Holy Spirit bears witness with his spirit, has no genuine certainty of faith, but rather has a false hope. And one, who is not clinging genuinely to the promises of God, no matter what external deeds of righteousness they may be doing, and no matter what they say about having this inner witness, but if they're not clinging to the promises of Christ, if they're not clinging to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, if they're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their eternal salvation, their hope is a vain and false hope. So, this testimony of the Holy Spirit brings the three grounds of our assurance together. And again, let me simply mention for you that the Holy Spirit ordinarily uses the means of God's word and his many operations, his many influences and his many effects in our lives to bear an infallible testimony to all who truly believe in Christ. What are those operations, influences and effects? What should we be looking for? Well, I stated earlier that we should look for loving holiness, Loving the truth and loving God and the brethren. But let me simply add to that, that again, if the Holy Spirit is living and abiding in our life, his testimony will evidence itself through grief and sorrow over our sin. It will evidence itself in our desire to spend time with the Lord Jesus Christ in secret worship, family worship, and corporate worship to enjoy Him and commune with Him, to enjoy His mercy and His grace. It will evidence itself, dear ones, in obedience to the jots and the tittles of God's moral law. It will evidence, the Holy Spirit will evidence Himself in our life and point to the fact that we love the doctrine of God that's revealed in Scripture, and especially even those doctrines that may seem the least of doctrines if they are being attacked by God's opponents. The Holy Spirit's testimony, dear ones, will honor or will evidence itself in our honor for the name of the Lord in avoiding when we know we are profaning the name of God Whether it's in our keeping of the Sabbath, or whether it's in what we say, or with regard to the the name of God. I mentioned this in the message last Lord's Day. We cannot be careless in our speech with regard to God's name. We don't have to be angry when we punctuate our sentences using God's name by profaning His name simply to say very carelessly, Lord, have mercy, in a sentence. And we hear this very often coming from the lips of professing Christians, Lord, have mercy. And yet if it's not said in reverence, it's a profaning of the name of God. We can profane, dear ones, the name of God further by what we watch. Because it's not only when we utter profanities, but when we watch profanities in our home and bring that profanity before the eyes of ourselves, our wives, men, and our children. Are we careful to scrutinize what we watch? Are we careful to scrutinize what we read, the novels, the magazines? You see, if we're profaning the name of God, the Holy Spirit will bear witness that we belong to Him by convicting us of these sins and cause us to grieve and to sorrow over them. That's how the Holy Spirit bears witness. The third main point is that John warns concerning the sin of unbelief in 1 John 5, chapter, chapter 5, verses, or verse 10, the second part of verse 10. There the apostle says, He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. Because God has revealed the testimony concerning His Son by such conspicuous means, the sin of those who do not cling to and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ is greatly aggravated because in so doing, John says, they call God a liar. In the case of unbelievers, this sin of spurning the testimony which God offers concerning His Son leads them straight to hell itself. And although John specifically in this verse refers to the unbelief of unbelievers, let me simply make this application to those of us who do believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that by our not trusting in the testimony which God has given concerning himself through the fear of man or through the worries of the circumstances of this life, we in effect say, God, you cannot keep your word or you will not keep your word. And we as well can be guilty by our actions of calling God a liar. God help us to turn from all worry and doubt concerning the promises of God and the faithfulness of God to see that as he has said to us in Hebrews thirteen five and 6, so it is true. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. By trusting in that God, we call Satan a liar. But by our fear and our worry, we call God a liar. The last point is... John summarizes for us the gospel that is to be believed in verses 11 and 12 when he says, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. I would simply close the sermon today by saying, The invitation to believe this gospel that we have just read in verses 11 and 12, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive that life which has been promised to all who believe, this gospel, this offer, this free offer of the gospel is extended to all today. Do not refuse him. Do not refuse the testimony which God gives concerning His Son, for to do so is to call the living God who created all things a liar. Dear ones, today is the day of salvation. Do not put off till tomorrow what you should do today. If you do not know Christ, embrace Him today. If you have trusted Christ and you know you have embraced Christ alone for your eternal salvation, renew your covenant and your vow with Him now to follow Him wherever He leads. And I invite all of you today to come to the feast which has been prepared for you and to dine with the Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy Him For he alone is our life. He is our righteousness. He is our joy and our delight. And though everything in this world be taken away from us, if we have Christ, we have everything. Embrace the promise. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise Thee this day that Thou hast given to us a testimony and a record which abundantly witnesses to the truth concerning Thy Son. And, O oh Lord, our God, we embrace that testimony concerning Thy Son, and we embrace Thy Son. We trust in Him this day, alone for our salvation. We do pray, Father, that Thou would search our hearts, that Thou would look closely into every secret place and every crevice within our heart where there are hidden sins that we have not grieved over, or sorrowed over, or refused to repent of. And that, Father, thou would show us that by treasuring these secret sins in our heart, Lord God, we will suffer by not having that certainty of faith. But, O Lord our God, as weak as we may be, when we repent and flee to Christ for mercy we will continue to enjoy Thy grace and grow in ever greater certainty of faith in our life. We do pray, Father, that Thou would stir up all grace within the lives of Thy people this day. We do pray, Father, that we would not be negligent, that we would not be indifferent to these things. For our God, they are our joy and our delight and peace and confidence with Thee. We do pray, Father, that Thou would bless Thy people in the enjoying of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale,